the scripture reading for this afternoon will be taken in connection with the covenant. We'll be speaking of the covenant and what exactly it is. So we'll be reading together from Genesis 6. Genesis 6, starting at verse 11, not at verse 13 as we find it there. Starting at verse 11 and we'll be reading until verse 22. And you'll be able to find that on page 6 of your pew Bible. So we just sang the words of Psalm 12 in verse 5. Lord, protect us from this generation. You can imagine that these words would have been similar to what was going through Noah's mind during this time. We read here the Word of God. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. We'll now read from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith. And we'll be reading specifically from verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. You'll be able to find that on page 1382 of your pew Bible. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So far, the word of God. beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
This afternoon, I want to take some time between the different series that we've been working through in the afternoons, as we work our way through the confessions, to tackle an idea which is actually quite central to our understanding of the Reformed faith. It's not one which comes up in any of the three confessions that we have in the back of our Bible under a specific heading, but it's so assumed by them and by our reading of Scripture that it's something we ought to take some time to reflect on. And that's the question of covenant. The covenant is something which those of you who have been born and raised in the Canadian Reformed churches are so familiar with that it's become second nature to most of you. You read the Bible in view of the covenant. You understand that the way in which God works with his people is through the covenant. It's especially at the foreground today. Our sister, Pamela Couvret, responded to the covenant promises that she was given at the time of her baptism with a profession of faith, publicly placing her trust in Jesus Christ. But one thing that you shouldn't take for granted is how unfamiliar this idea of the covenant is in much of the Christian world. So this afternoon, I want to spend a little bit of time explaining what the Bible says about the covenant. Now, of course, it's impossible to cover every aspect of it in one afternoon. There have been many, many books written on the subject. But I'd like to give a quick rundown on a few of the major concepts that come out of the Bible. In the New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy... A covenant is described in this way. It's literally a contract. In the Bible, an agreement between God and His people, in which God makes promises to His people and usually requires certain conduct from them. In the Old Testament, God made agreements with Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And it goes on. Now, it's interesting to note that this definition chooses to begin with Noah. While God's dealings with Noah are the first place where he specifically mentions the word covenant, it's not the first place where the idea of covenant comes to the fore. If you describe a covenant as a contract, an agreement between God and his people, where there's a promise and there's an obligation, it's something that we see coming into effect much earlier than in the time of Noah. In fact, we see the beginnings of this idea of covenant in the Garden of Eden with the fall of man. But before we get into that part of it, we need to look at exactly what a covenant is made up of so that we know what we're looking for when we see it. And for that, let's go to Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 13 and following, we read that the reason for God's destruction of the world was that mankind has become wicked and violent. They've abandoned the God who created them. And so we read God saying to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Ever since the fall into sin, all of mankind is joined together in a common misery. Things are bad, and they're only going to get worse. God is going to flood the earth in our passage. 
And by all rights, every single human being should be wiped out. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because of God's undeserved grace, he says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. That's the very nature of the covenant. That's its very essence. Man is joined together in a common misery. But God, in undeserved mercy, reaches out to man, and he establishes a relationship with people. And on the basis of that relationship, the relationship that he established, God is going to save the human race. So we see two parts to the covenant. The first is that it is one way in its establishment. God is the one who establishes it. Now the second part that comes to the fore is that the covenant has within it promises and obligations. Theologians describe this as the covenant being unilateral in its establishment, establishment and bilateral in its administration. Unilateral, one way from God, and in the way it's carried out, bilateral. Now, it's very important to separate these two. Why? Because it means that everything begins with God. And when God calls man to respond, man's response does not shake the one-sided nature of the covenant. What God asks, He also provides to the one who received it in faith. Since God is the driving force behind the covenant, it is possible to be saved through the covenant because God is the one who supplies. The work is done. The question is, do we believe that to be the case? Do we trust God? Now, this isn't in the sense of our, our faith, our belief being considered as something that we contribute to the equation, that we contribute in order to save us, but in the sense of receiving what God has already done, what God has already provided. Now, that's a very important point. It does say in our passage, the passage that we read, that Noah was a good man. Even God says that Noah was a good man compared to the people who were around him. But it's not on the basis of Noah's personal goodness that God chooses to save him. Instead, it's on the basis that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah's righteousness came from the fact that he looked to the Lord for grace. You can see that in comparing Hebrews 11 verse 7 with Genesis 6, verse 8. God saw that Noah was righteous, but it was still because of God's grace that Noah was saved. Noah was a man like every other. He was conceived and born into sin like every other. Psalm 51, verse 5. But he was seen as a righteous man because he looked to the Lord for his mercy and grace in the face of his need. And when he received that grace from the Lord, he responded in faith. That's exactly what our text in Hebrews 11 verse 7 points out. It was not on the basis of works, but by faith. Noah, being divinely warned, prepared an ark by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He wouldn't have needed to become an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith if he had had that righteousness already 
in and of himself. Now, did this mean that Noah stood back and did nothing? Certainly not. In faith, he responded to this gift that was offered to him. He built an ark. And when the rains came down and the storm raged, he stayed within the safety of the confines of the ark. He trusted God to keep him safe. Now, it must be kept in mind that if not for God, Noah would never have built the ark in the first place. He wouldn't have had the resources or the health or the help necessary to be able to build that ark. It was all because God took that first step and then gave Noah everything he needed along the way that Noah was able to do anything at all. So if you look at a covenant in that sense, that God makes a relationship, that it's out of His grace, and that He does it not of our own deserving end, that there are responses of thankfulness that we have within the covenant, and that God gives everything necessary for living out that thankfulness, you see a pattern unfolding. This pattern reaches much further back into history than just Noah. And this pattern reaches forward and becomes richer and fuller as history progresses from this point as well. But it all finds its roots in God reaching out to man first. So where else do we see God extending the ark to carry people through the floodwaters that by all rights should have drowned them, metaphorically speaking? Where else do we see this promise of God that's offered to people who are joined with everyone else in a common misery? We already see that beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15. Now that God has already extended to man the beginnings of the promise of the covenant in Genesis 2, where he, as mankind's God, commanded them to carry out responsibilities, their response of faith there was that they would faithfully tend the garden. But the real one-sidedness of it, the real gracious part of it, where God promised to give man something which man, in all honesty, had forfeited all right to, that happened after the fall. After the fall into sin, the situation for mankind looks hopeless. He's in a miserable state that he's plunged himself into. And yet, God offers man an ark that he can cling to. A hope that will carry him through the destruction, through the destructive flood of chaos, darkness, and sin. As he's condemning everyone for their part into the fall into sin, he, he first speaks to Adam, he speaks to the woman, and then he turns to the devil, Satan, that serpent in the garden. It's at this point that he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's the seed promise. That's the heart of the covenant. That's the ark that they can climb aboard. There is someone coming who will be born of the woman, who will deliver man. As we progress through the covenants, you'll find that coming back time and time again. God reaches out first. God saves man, and it's all because of who we find at the heart of the covenant, Jesus Christ. It's all because of God's promises towards man, a promise that finds its fulfillment in the God-man in our Lord. 
that undeserved grace, that one-sided, undeserved promise of God based on His grace through Jesus Christ alone is the seed of the covenant that sprouted and then grew into a beautiful tree bearing more and more fruit throughout history. So in rapid progression for a moment, we see the ark of God's grace with Noah, which we just discussed. And Christ was at the heart of that as well. God didn't have to save any man, but because He promised that Jesus Christ would come to bring salvation for sin, God preserved the human race through Noah. It was for the sake of Christ that God preserved man. Then we see it again through Abraham, where God picks a specific person through whom He's going to bring this promise to the world. To Abraham, God says, all nations will be blessed through you. Again, we see Jesus Christ as the seed of the covenant, the fulfillment of God's gospel promise. God reached out first. Abraham responded in faith. God provided all that was necessary for that response of faith. After this, we see it in Moses, where God unfolds it yet again, making a covenant with the people of Israel. He will be their God, and He'll give them everything, everything that is necessary for their salvation. And in order to show them how they may show their thankfulness for saving them, he gives them direction as to what pleases him. But even here with all the laws that he gives to the people of Israel, we see the seed of the gospel in that covenant. Because each of those laws wasn't meant for the people in order to, to, to allow the people to save themselves. That's why they needed parts of those laws that directed them what, uh, with regards to what they needed to do once they had fallen into sin. So we, after each ceremony of cleansing and atonement, we see it pointing ahead to Christ. Every part of the Old Testament law was meant to foreshadow, to point to that seed, to point to the one who was to come. Every time the prophets called people back to the covenant, back to their obligations and the promises that were made, back to their God, they were reminding the people of their own inability, their need to repent, their need to trust in the one who would be able to fulfill the covenant demands that he set out for them. But does this carry over to the New Testament? Does the fact that Christ is the seed of the covenant and that Christ has come into the flesh mean that there's no need for a covenant anymore? Is there a huge gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is something that we have now radically different? That's what some Christians argue, but that's not really the reality. So let me explain why. There are many other reasons, but due to time, we'll only deal with this one for a moment. The way in which the new covenant is shown to us in the New Testament is different. But at its heart, the seed of the covenant, you might say, is the same. Compared to a fruit that has a seed in the middle, when you take off all of the flesh of the fruit, do you have something different? Arguably, it's different in the way that it's revealed to us. We have something that's new in the way that it's shown to us. We're looking at it with new eyes. But its heart is the exact same. We find this particular truth in Hebrews 8, 
which takes some long quotations from the Old Testament, specifically Jeremiah 31. There we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. You look through the letter of the Hebrews and it explains how that former covenant with all of its laws fell short. It explained how people needed to be renewed time and time again through all the sacrifices and ceremonies. And it says there is a new covenant coming which all of this pointed to in which you won't have to worry about the constant ceremonies anymore because they will be fulfilled in a sacrifice that happens once for all. This new covenant that they speak of is the covenant that we live in today, the author of Hebrews says. And it's still a covenant. It still has those two parts, a promise and an obligation. And it's still unilateral in its establishment, meaning that it's all God in its establishment, but bilateral in its administration, meaning that we still have a responsibility and an obligation. At this point, people's hackles go up. Obligation, they say. But we're saved by grace through faith. And indeed we are. But bear with me for a moment as we follow through this same pattern. God establishes His covenant with His people. He establishes a relationship with them. He gives them everything that fulfills the requirements of that covenant. He gives them Christ who fulfills the requirements of the covenant. Christ fulfills all of the obligations which man could not. That's the fulfillment of the seed promise that we looked at in Genesis 3, verse 15. Through the covenant relationship, God brings in His people. But simply being in the covenant, simply knowing that you are baptized and knowing that you go to church regularly and are a part of this church family that we call a covenant community is not enough. Why? Because you're not saved through the covenant. You're saved through Jesus Christ. What the covenant does is bring you into fellowship with Christ. The covenant is the way in which God exposes His people to the blessings that the gospel brings. But it is Jesus Christ who saves. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9 verse 6, Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who is within the covenant people of Israel is recognized as Israel. Simply being in the covenant is not enough. It's not like when you had water sprinkled on your head to mark you as part of this covenant community, you get a golden ticket that takes you straight to heaven. It's Jesus Christ who saves. Does this mean that the covenant community is meaningless? Does it mean that it means nothing to have been baptized? That we, all, that, that we need to all have a conversion experience to be saved? No. Because it's in the covenant community that we're exposed to the riches of God's grace. And it's also in the covenant community that God works most frequently to save His people. Don't take that for granted. 
Do you remember the stories of Rahab and Ruth? Those were exceptions, not the rule. Apart from exceptional seasons of growth, God does, his most, does most of His work within the covenant community. He lays hold of the hearts of His adopted children and He transforms them. He exposes them to His Word right from an early age and He changes them. It's like Paul says in Romans 3 when people ask if there's an advantage to being in the covenant community. And he says, much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Don't take that for granted, brothers and sisters. Simple exposure to the gospel message is not enough. And we can see that in the stories of these missionaries who go out to different places and they'll preach to thousands. They'll expose thousands of people to the gospel. We can see that actually right now in Papua New Guinea where Reverend Wildeboer, one of our missionaries, he's busy traveling through the P&G highlands with a group of other pastors. And they are preaching. And there are enormous groups that will sit down in the marketplace, that will listen to them, that will hear the words that they're saying, and that will get up and leave. It's beautiful when the gospel transforms people. It's beautiful, and it's something we should pray for. But we should recognize that simple exposure to the gospel is not enough. And we can see that in the story of Lydia. On top of being exposed to the gospel, the Holy Spirit needs to work in her heart to soften it, to open it up, so that she might receive the gospel message. Now God has made the covenant community particularly blessed in that this happens most frequently within the covenant community to the children of believers. It's not a statistical thing that people expose more frequently, embrace Christ more frequently, although it might seem that way to people on the outside. It's a gift of God to a covenant people. It's a blessing from God himself. So what's the practical outworking of this? The practical outworking is this. Don't put your trust in your baptism. Don't put your hope in the covenant, but put your hope in what these point to. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ark that bears you through the raging waters of the flood. The church is not. The ceremonies are not. These are places where God gathers His people together and places where we are called to come. But it's Jesus Christ who bears you through and who bears your children through. The covenant brings the children into the family of God. But we are required to train our children to understand and to respond to their covenant promises. To take hold of them by faith. We need to train ourselves as well. Constantly remind ourselves to look to Jesus Christ in faith. Have you done this? It saddens me when I run into people who bear the name Christian, whether here or elsewhere, who have borne the name of Christian for years, sometimes decades, 
who are barely biblically literate and who know nothing really of what Christ has done for them and don't know if they even want to be part of the covenant community, this people bound together in love, this people bound together with Christ at their head. When this happens, it's often a result of the lack of their parents and raising them up in the way that they should grow, that command that we find throughout Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that every child who wanders is the fault of the parents. Certainly not. It's deeply saddening to see it happen. And sometimes the parents have done everything in their power to teach their child to cling to Christ, but their child still left. And it's at this point that we need to turn over those children to a sovereign and faithful God. That we need to pray for them and bring them constantly before the throne of grace. But for the rest of us, parents, when you baptize your children, you do have a responsibility to, as our form says, instruct your child in this doctrine. As soon as he or she is able to understand and have him or her instructed by other people as well to the utmost of your power. If you carry out this responsibility, then your child will be blessed with the very oracles of God, with the very words of God. You will have made every effort to supply your child with everything so that they can never say at the end of days, I never knew. My parents never made it clear to me. So what does that make the covenant? At the end of the day, we can look to the covenant and its obligations in terms of the works and self-examination that the Apostle Paul calls Corinthians to do at the end of his second letter to them. After having rebuked and corrected them, he doesn't call their response of obedience something that saves them. And so neither should we call our response of obedience something that saves us. Rather, he says, their obedience is a reflection of Christ, who is not weak in dealing with you, but who is powerful among you. Christ, who is crucified in weakness, but who lives by the power of God. And in him, we are weak, recognizing our own dependency, he says, and our own shortcomings. But we still live with him by the power of God. So then the covenant grants us a framework by which we may examine and test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, to see whether we cling to Christ. And if we truly do examine ourselves and test ourselves and seek God, we'll find that what Paul says is true. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and following, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. More than that, it gives us a family by whom we will be held to account. Alongside of whom we can test ourselves and encourage each other. We can see that in the words of Paul there. If you indeed test yourself and have a desire to be found in the faith, you'll come to know that we, he says, not you, but that we, he's embracing them as being with him. We are not disqualified. 
we find ourselves seeking God with one accord, seeking Him in harmony and enjoying very real blessings that being in the covenant grants us, whether we are born into it or have been brought into it by the unsearchable riches of the grace of God. This testing is not for finding our righteousness in ourselves, but it allows us to confirm to see if we truly do find our righteousness outside of ourselves, that we rest and trust in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, love the blessing of the covenant that God pours out on His people. Love the depth of the riches that God bestows on us in Christ by means of the covenant. Grow to love the family to whom you're bound in the covenant. And in all of that, keep Jesus Christ as your treasure at the center of that covenant. Amen.